having a, a philosophical basis and values and ultimately building a love and joy and compassion for all living beings within ourselves allows us to make our work actually real, effective and long-term. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, hi there, good evening, you know, or whatever time it is. Welcome back to the podcast that's going in a very different but cool direction this week, the Rasafari Podcast. So we'll get to why that is in a moment, but first uh, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Make sure that you're following along on all of the socials, at Rasafari. Uh, on TikTok at Rossafari Pod. And um, yeah, you can go and support the pod, patreon.com slash Rossafari, all that good stuff. Follow the links, do the things, buy people Rossafari merch for the holidays at Rossafari.com. I know some people have been ordering, especially the What's Your Poop Story? Poop Story gear and i am here for it loving it loving it loving it all right enough with that let's get to this week's episode so i mentioned roughly 46 seconds ago that this is going to be a little bit different of an episode and i did not lie to you that is because i am talking to leif cox who is the founder of the orangutan project the international Tiger Project, the International Elephant Project, and additional conservation organizations. The dude gets it done. And I kind of want to start off by telling you about how this interview got scheduled. I got an email from Leif's publicist who suggested that he should be on the podcast. And um, I saw the names of the, the organizations that he founded, and I did just a little bit of, you know, poking to make sure that this was, was good and was, in, you know, aligned with the, the mission of Rasafari, which it is. And so uh, I said yes, and that was, that was all I did. As you all know, I don't love to dive too deeply. Well, it turns out that Leif is one of the most philosophical conservationists I have ever spoken to. And we go deep on philosophy and why this stuff matters and um, kind of just how you save animals, not from the perspective of, well, we need to take three acres of forest in Borneo and do this with it, but it's just very philosophical. I'm not going to give anything away, but uh, it's it's really interesting. This is, without a doubt, one of the most unique conversations I have had with anyone on this podcast ever. You are going to hear some really surprising stuff and and maybe some stuff that sounds a little contradictory to what you've heard before. Uh, but that is the beauty of conservation and conservation science, to be honest with you. There are different strategies. There are different approaches. There are different attitudes. And um, Leif has some really cool, really, really interesting takes on things. 
Um, we're going to talk about palm oil in a way that may surprise you. And we're even going to settle once and for all the debate over whether the word is orangutan or orangutan or both. I'm not going to give anything away. So, uh, yeah, uh, this one, I'll tell you what, Leif is Australian and we were doing it on Zoom, so the audio is good, but it's, it's not the best. But I promise you, you are going to want to make sure that you hear every word of this one. This is unlike anything Rasafari has been so far. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's going to be a good time. We laugh too. Don't worry. I'm talking all about philosophy and conservation and all this science stuff. But we get goofy. You know, Star Trek may come up. So does Mad Max. There's there's laughter. There's, there's humor. Uh, yeah, it's a good time. I really can't wait to share it with you all. So I'm going to stop waiting to share it with you all and bring you my interview with Leif Cox of a bunch of different conservation organizations. All right. So uh, why don't we start off by you telling me uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Mm -hmm. um, my name's Leif Cox and I'm a wildlife conservationist. Um, and I've been working um, to conserve wildlife uh, mainly in Indonesia and Malaysia for about 30 years now. Um, a wide range of animals uh, and different projects. Um, but my skill and my hands-on experience has been with orangutans. Um, right. And so that, that's been the um, where I've spent most and my closest amount of time with um, wild animals. Well, that's very cool. Um, and I'm I'm hearing this accent, and I don't think it sounds Indonesian. Uh, where are you from? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, my nationality is Australian, um, but I was brought up in Hong Kong. So um, I think Australians don't think I have a really a true Australian accent, but it's probably close enough for um, people in the in North America to to pick up on my, I'm Australian. Yeah, that was that was my guess. Uh, you know, although you never know nowadays, but that's very mm -hmm. cool. Uh, so how did you get into all of this? Tell me about like early life and falling in love with animals and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, there's always this talk about um, how people develop, whether it's nature or nurture. Um, certainly for me, there's strong evidence that it's nature. So Although I, I grew up in one of the largest, densest populated metropolis in the world, um, I was very much always attracted to wildlife and animals. And so my, my room in our flat was, you know, full of, you know, budgerigars and goldfish and tropical fish and terrapins and cats and, you know, all sorts of um, creatures. So um, I had a, a natural kind of... Um, um, you know, leaning towards that um, from a very early age. And, of course, um, I started, uh, I did my um, undergraduate degree in, in, in biology and zoology, um, started working um, with orangutans at a zoo, 15 orangutans, and um, did my um, my postgraduate diploma on, on um, primate behaviour, then my master's, on orangutans mm -hmm. in parallel or working hands-on um, with them for, for um, at least a couple of decades. That's amazing. That's really cool. And um, does the passion, you know, from your your childhood still exist today? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's you know, it's 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 a life mission, um, you know, to um, to you know to save the orangutan species from extinction, um, work for their individual welfare, um, but also under the umbrella of conservation and the wider umbrella of rainforest conservation, um, help the other critically endangered species such as elephants and tigers. As, as well as we're working very much a lot with the Indigenous communities to allow them to prosper um, under the, in the rainforest, the remaining rainforest. Well, and that's something that I always love to talk about with conservation. So let's go into that a little bit. Um, I feel like there are always going to be some people who, you know, when you say you're trying to conserve an animal species or multiple species, um, you know, and that you're doing that by trying to help humans, that seems a little off if you don't really understand how that works. Uh, so can you explain why it's important to help uh, indigenous communities prosper? Mm-hmm. Well, to, to put it in a in a philosophical context, I would describe, for example, orangutans as my expertise, as a center of my love and not the boundary of it. And if we do not have love and compassion for all living beings on this planet and all living beings in the, in the work that we're doing, it's like trying to finish a jigsaw puzzle with several pieces missing. And it just doesn't work. You don't get the, the end outcome. And, and, and so we're all interlinked and it's all connected. So to have this narrow vision um, and exclude others um, from your particular bias um, ultimately is not effective even for the particular group of living beings that you have that bias towards. I love that. That's a great uh, philosophical way of looking at things. That's it's very cool. Um, and so tell me, so I know you started off uh, working in some zoos. One thing that I like to do is I don't do a lot of research. I like to hear it from you, you know, with the guest. Um, but I did a little and I know that you started off in zoos. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I, I started you know, working in a zoo many, many years ago um, as my first experience, Um, you know, first of all, working with birds and then the big cats and then elephants and then, um, and luckily I had this wonderful opportunity to work with 15 orangutans, the largest um, colony of orangutans outside of the wild. Um, And the other great thing that happened, of course, is back in those days, there was no occupational health and safety. And so I was basically given a diet sheet, told how to move the slides, and said, there you go, there's your orangutan. <laughs> um, so I didn't have any preconceived ideas. Um, and so um, one of the things I didn't have a preconceived idea is that these, um, these beautiful creatures were potentially dangerous. Um, and so I just went in with them and I had my lunch with them and got to know them as, as friends. And so it wasn't some time later then I went to other zoos and orangutans were kept behind bars and there were these big yellow lines one meters back otherwise the orangutan will grab you and I said well gee <laughs> I just been <laughs> working in with them um and so I got to know them as, as persons and had close personal relationships with them you know being at orangutans at the birth um you know nurturing the babies um nursing the orangutans when they're physically and mentally upset and so of course then discovering that um 
having this close personal friendship with these orangutans, discovering that this that persons may not be humans, but the persons nonetheless, and they they weren't doing well in captivity despite all the love and care they were giving with them, just as um, human people don't do well in refugee camps. Not that the people looking after refugee camps are the most wonderful people in the world, love and compassion, trying to look after them. But as persons, we need to control our environment, who, when, how often. Have, we have worries about the past and, you know, anxieties about the future. And, and so this led to um, a few things. Is One is starting to bring the orangutans um, back to the wild and reintroducing the first zoo-born orangutans um, back into the wild, but also discovering, of course, very quickly that these beautiful self-aware persons, in fact, the most intelligent being that shares our planet with us, um, has been driven to extinction in the most horrific ways that we can imagine. And that's, and, and therefore, you know, in, um, in parallel to working with the orangutans, I started the orangutan project in 1998 and developed that up until it became much more bigger, much more important than the work I was doing at the zoo. And I, I transferred over into a full-time wildlife conservationist. And that's just, that's just incredible. Uh, tell me, you know, what happened? How did you start the orangutan project and how did you build it up? Did you, did you know how to do that or were you just kind of passionate and hopeful? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't know very much. What I did know is I was going on my holidays to Indonesia and um, I was rescuing orangutans and seeing all that kind of stuff, um, taking them to rescue centres. And a group of um, volunteers at the zoo came with me on, on, on a particular trip. And when they came back, I, I had an inspired group of people to help form a committee in the basis of an organisation which was um, a, a huge advantage. Um, I also had at the time a, a um, I eventually became, you know, a supervisor, a curator, a director, everything at the zoo as your career progresses. Um, all at the time, always remained in contact with, with the orangutans. But at the time, I was, I was still a, a just a keeper and I had a wonderful um, boss called Rach Gates, an, an American from, um, from Chicago, who, um, who, who started a, a, a project called the Silver Gibbon Project. And so um, Rich was able to give um, a, a ethical framework for me to understand how to start organisations and, and move in the right direction. I also had a lot of contact and spent a little time in the jungle with one of the eminent philosophers of our time, Peter Singer, yeah, his PhD thesis was actually called Animal Liberation. And I talked to Peter quite a bit about the make the ethical frameworks and structures um, for um, not-for-profits and to ensure that, you know, from the very beginning, we, we've got this organisation right to give maximum impact um, to orangutans and, of course, all the other living creatures. That's awesome. Now, you've mentioned philosophy and ethics a lot um in this interview which i think is awesome um how how deep um would you say uh the the philosophical roots that you have go into the organization and and everything that that you do oh it's absolutely essential 
Um, so, yeah, I, I guess my nature is to be philosophical. <laughs> um, that's just my in, in, inherent nature. And so I've, I've written a couple of books, I've written three books, and one's about my zoo days, orangutans about survival. Orangutans, my cousins, my friends, is about the journey to save orangutans. And finally, our humanity is, is an author autobiographical, but far more philosophical about the ethics and the values and, and everything. But one of the key aspects to it is I do not believe we can reform the world unless we reform ourselves. And I see this so many times, and also in conservation, is because if people don't reform themselves, they have this unhappiness and this need inside them for name, fame, money, and power, even though they don't cognize it um, you know, at, at the conscious level. And what they end up doing is fighting all the other conservationists, fighting all the projects, and they also get worn down. They get, they just get um, mental health issues, and they get exhausted through the the constant barrage of problems which conservation presents you. And, and so, and that's not the way to achieve anything. So, having a, a philosophical basis and values, and ultimately building a love and joy and compassion for all living beings within ourselves. Um, allows us to make our work actually real, effective and long-term. And therefore, I don't see um, having a philosophical, for better, want for better word, spiritual um, connection with your work is it, it, absolutely essential um, um, and is not necessarily add-on because without it, I don't think we can be effective in the long-term. I really love that. Um, I am, I'm very into philosophy as well. Um, and, and that's just, that's such a great way. You don't hear, I mean, I talk to conservationists all the time and you are the first one who has really brought up, um, philosophy and using philosophical thinking and, and trying to, to fix yourself. And, you know, so much of what you said is so true. And I've heard so many stories from people about, um, you know, ego-driven stuff ruining um, the attempts to to do conservation work and everything. I think that's that's really beautiful. Uh, what were the names of your books again? Because I very badly want to check them out. The first one is I think you're going to get secondhand because how the print is orangutans and the battle for for survival. But the um, the two ones which are still you know, in print available, orangutans, my cousins, my friends, and finding our humanity, which is the, the most philosophical one. Um, and so, yeah, so it, they're all autobiographical, but they all kind of, in a sense, um, take a different aspect of my journey, um, um, depending on people's interests. I mean, well, you've just sold at least two books, and if I can find a used one, the third. Um, that's really cool. So tell me about, like, some of your field work and some of the stuff that you do with the Orangutan Project. Mm-hmm. Well, what we the, the big picture strategy is to save up to eight ecosystems for the right type shape inside the rainforest to take orangutans, elephants, tigers, and indigenous communities through this extinction crisis. And we believe we only have 10 years to do this. Um, now, when I say 10 years, people think, oh, you're saying there's going to be no rainforest in 10 years or no orangutans, or elephants, or tigers. That's not what I'm saying. Is what I'm saying is if we don't save enough orangutans, enough rainforest in the next 10 years, the rainforest will eventually be destroyed. The orangutan population will 
go down. And I spent my last few years at the zoo as a small population biologist working out, you know, the management of, of zoo collections. So I'm reasonably um, familiar with these things. But what we know is, for example, if you don't have a minimum size of number of orangutans in the population, it will slowly inbreed to extinction over time. If you don't, from an ecological perspective, if you don't have enough rainforest, to, it will, because rainforest reduces temperature, it produces its own rain, it, you know, um, et, et cetera, and it needs, you know, certain key areas like lowland and river rainforest that orangutans and elephants need, uh, not just any forest. So it will basically collapse in and on itself. And you see, you know, for example, problems with the Amazon, actually, you know, going reaching a tipping point, as an example, and, and eventually converting into savannah because there's not enough rainforest to support rainforest. And so, and, and of course, this is strangely linked with climate change. And for, for very good reasons, one of the big drivers of the climate change, other than fossil fuels and the, 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 the animal agriculture industry, is destruction of the rainforest. And so that's why climate scientists say we've got 10 years to turn this around. Not that the plant not going to be here in 10 years, but these feedback loops lead to destruction. So I pretty much say we're living in the most important decade in the whole of human history. And um, what we're doing is obviously, you know, helping specifically orangutan elephants, tigers, indigenous communities. But what we're doing to save the rainforest is of intrinsic value to the whole planet um, because the um, the period where we could, let's say, exploit developing nations for their wealth and resources, you know, without feedback loops coming to affect us, is gone. We've we gone beyond that point. So this is intrinsically valuable to all living beings, um, no matter where you live on the planet. Do you find yourself struggling uh, knowing how important this this current decade is, this current time is, um, and also seeing the just insane amount of misinformation and the lack of caring? And um, I mean, I got to tell you, sometimes I'm really disheartened to just being in this world sometimes, you know, um, is that a struggle for you at all, seeing all of that? It's certainly at least a challenge. And we're, we're really at this turning point where you can see in many ways the world's becoming more intelligent, more enlightened, more compassionate. And then there's the other half which is becoming more authoritarian, more divided, more hate-filled. And, you know, so the soul of the planet is in bounds at the moment, these two forces. And which one will win? And, you know, we, we can have the, I call it the Star Trek future, <laughs> you know, or we can have the Mad Max future. <laughs> Yeah, which one will 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 win? It's still it's still in the bounce to it. Um, um, but from a philosophical basis, to give um, this, you know, we must develop that joy and love and contentment within ourselves and express that, um, and not the other way around. Not looking for um, outside things to make us happy, because that will always let us down. Um, so we have to find that love and then we have to overflow and express it. Just as somebody who is unhappy has to express unhappiness and breeds unhappiness with others, um, we have to find the love. So we shouldn't be looking for outside forces for our, um, you know, our um, ability to um, continue on. But the other aspect to it is, is every little thing is worth it. 
every orangutan that we save that's not killed or murdered, uh, who ha- then has the ability to live a, a life free in a wild, they're a world to their own. And just helping one orangutan is worth a lifetime's worth of work. Not needs to mention that you know the hundreds and thousands that were helping to rescue and and protect. So to, to nothing is wasted um, on that journey. Um, of course, we have to work for the big picture to um, save the, the future of the whole planet for everybody. That's uh, that's a great sentiment. I really love that. Um, talk to me about some of the nuts and bolts about what kind of work you are doing to save orangutans. How how does that? How do you save orangutans? Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent question. Um, and like with anything, I, it's not it's not going to be a simple answer. <laughs> I always Good, because it's a long podcast, so take your time. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I always say for every complex problem in the world, there's a simple solution, which is absolutely wrong. Very good for getting elected or, or selling <laughs> products, but not really good for solving real issues. So what we do is we look at each ecosystem, we diagnose the disease, and give the right medicine or conservation, the right type and the right dosage, just like going to your doctor, diagnose the disease, give the medicine the right dosage, the right type of medicine. So it's, each one has a different formula. So some, it's about um, rescue, rehabilitation, or release, and we're trying to reestablish extinct populations or um, reinforce populations which are no longer viable due to, um, to poaching um, before we're able to protect it. Then we've got direct habitat protection with putting ranges out into the field. Um, you know, the, one of the most fundamental things, of course, is habitat and habitat and habitat. So a lot of time and effort is leasing and securing large areas of lowland river and forest, the most valuable piece of the forest for the future, and building together. Um, the variety means the, the, um, the viable ecosystems. And then it's working with Indigenous communities who've been practising, um, you know, hunter-gathering and slash-and-burn agriculture sustainably for centuries. The only reason it's not sustainable anymore because the vast majority of the ancestral land have been taken away by big multinationals and turned into unsustainable monocultures such as palm oil. So they're going to destroy their own environment, not for fault of their own, is it is is because they don't have sufficient land. And so we're working with Indigenous communities to um, transition them to, to um, regenerative agricultural systems which are wildlife friendly under the rainforest canopy so they can prosper. And so we're, we're and, and in, and during that period, we have to support them. So we're educating the children. We're giving them school. We're giving them um, high school uh, education. We're given two university um, um, scholarships. Uh, and that's, that's only one one group of people, and that you know, while we're developing agricultural systems to allow them to prosper. So the the, the whole idea is, after my lifetime, we'll be leaving ecosystems not only environmentally sustainable and ecologically sustainable with you know um, sustainable populations of managed orangutan, tigers, and elephants but actually economically um, sustainable. So the, the, the people who live there will prosper indefinitely. Um, and it, the future is the future that we're looking at is not a future of, of impo- being impoverished. It's about, you know, you know, world-class internet <laughs> so to get access, great education, 
you know, good incomes, you know, um, you know, solar and um, small scale hydroelectricity, um, all the things that uh, allow people to live and prosper in the modern world. That's that's so much, but that's so awesome. I can't can't even imagine um, how you must feel being able to have all of that impact. And I love so much that you said, you know, well, after you're gone, um, this will be sustainable. I think that is that's a really beautiful thing. I really dig that. Um, so you mentioned palm oil. And I feel like that's a subject that, you know, comes up on here every once in a while. But um, working with orangutans as you do, I bet you uh, you could inform us a little bit more to my, you know, my listening public about um, the palm oil crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, the first thing is to say it's not, not, it's not about palm oil. And, um, you know, people naturally see a forest and then see it replaced by palm oil and say, well, if we deal with this palm oil issue, we can maybe solve a great deal of this rainforest destruction. And actually, completely not true. You could ban all palm oil tomorrow or go sustainable palm oil, whatever that means, because it's a monoculture, and all monocultures, by the very nature, science tells us unsustainable. So that's just kind of like greenwashing. Um, but the point is, is um, that's not real driver. The real driver is um, big businesses influence governments to give them rainforest. They cut down the rainforest for the value of the trees. They can make a fortune from cutting the trees down. And then they'll plant whatever unsustainable monoculture is on it. They'll give them really good profit in the short term. Now, palm oil is not the only alternative. There's pulp paper, there's rubber, um, there's sugar palm, there's coconuts, there's other examples. So if you take away palm oil, you're not going to stop the, the, the driver of deforestation. And so you can we, we can spend the next 20 years, you know, banning palm oil or something, and then, you know, then they'll plant coconuts. And, you know, <laughs> by that time, the frost has gone anyway. So um, so this is why I say it's like two wings of the bird. We have to have the, the, the love and compassion to make meaningful change. But we also have to have the in- intellect and knowledge to a- effect that change in a meaningful way. Because if we have one of those wings not working, we just go around in circles, which I see so much as the unfortunate uh, outcome of many people's genuine passionate energies not affecting meaningful change because they haven't um, taken the time to understand the situation. And, of course, what happens is we get compassionate about it. We undertake an activity like we're going to go palm oil campaign but we're too far in it then. We can't turn around, you know. And so, um, and as humans, we have to keep put the blinkers on then, cognitive dissonance, you know, so we can keep focusing on the direction because it's, it's too hard to admit that we got it wrong and turn around and go backwards. And that's the same with the people destroying the environment. They're not necessarily evil people, but what they do is cognitive dissonance, you know, and you see this... Um, you know, and then they make these analogies that, you know, obviously all environmentalists are really pinkos, you know, socialists, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know. And so what they're really fighting is this, the socialists trying to destroy the planet, you know, not that we're trying to save the planet for everybody. Um, so so this is very typical of the, the um, I guess, the flaws of the human condition where we're very well adapted to live in, the, in tribes, you know, and... Um, 
but we're, we're really still very maladapted to live in the global economy um, that we're partaking in. Wow, that uh, that went in a very different direction than I expected it to. I really appreciate that. Um, wow. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, you're you are the expert, and I trust you on that one. And that is just you're right. I feel like most of the messaging is palm oil bad, orangutans good, and uh, it's it's really interesting to hear a different take on that. You really threw me, but in a good way. I'm grateful. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like learning from experts. But uh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, palm oil companies are, are not destroying the environment, right, right, but they're right. businessmen. They're not palm oil people. They're, you know, like, you know, they have paper businesses. They have banks. They have this. They have that. They, they've got many options. They just choose which of the palette is, is, is most suitable. And so you can't just address one commodity. Neither right. you can address one company because you see all the time you say, well, you can stop this company from knocking down the forest. The government just give it to another company and knocks it down. So, you know, so what you have to address is government policy, right. management, regulation, um, these sort, these sorts of things, and, and direct meaningful outcomes. And dealing with companies, not asking to become sustainable in fifty years time, and then it's hundred years time. <laughs> you ask them to. We actually have a track of forest where which you own. Or you've got a plantation, and we need that to secure this viable ecosystem. So, you know, what we're asking you is very specific and definable, and in the now. Um, and so, it, it's kind of um, it, it, what I'm describing is intelligent application of our compassion and love. Um, yeah, rather than um, I guess, yeah, um, expressing it genuine care and, and compassion for other beings, but in, in a way that doesn't affect meaningful change. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated, but I'm, I'm greatly appreciative, you know, for you sharing that thought. Um, I never really thought of how paper is also one of those things like palm oil. That's just, you know, something they can quickly grow and profit off of. Um, I'm not going to like watching The Office as much after this because that was a paper company, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much two companies basically have paved 80% of the forest in Sumatra, the islands Sumatra, where two species of orangutans, you know. And so, yes, there's lots of palm oil here, but, you know, people don't mention even paper. Well, hold it, you know, in the most critically endangered orangutan, that's a far bigger player um, in, in, in rainforest destruction. Um, but it's, yeah. But what, but the trouble is, is um, it's with with um, um, fundraising and and you know, and then broader marketing. You have to have a simple message, simple, direct, and understandable. And Palmer offers that. You know, it offers that very simple, direct message. You know, um, for example, if climate change was, for example, caused by um, North Korea, we would solved it years ago. Identifiable <laughs> enemy. Right? We know how to deal with these guys. It's external, identifiable. Right? That's how our brains work. But if it's us and it's very complex and we're involved with it, we, we don't have the capacity. So when we're trying to market a fundraise, people often think, okay, what I need to do is, is simplify the message, identify the enemy, which is palm oil. And you know, and they can, you can focus on this. And so from a marketing strategy, it's actually you know quite you know intelligent. Um but then it's in a sense tail starts wa- tails wagging the dog, <laughs> you know, and, and 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 the outcome doesn't become effective. 
No, absolutely. That makes so much sense to me. Um, yeah, I, uh, huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You, you literally, you blew my mind on this one, but you know, as you explain it, it totally makes sense to me. That's, uh, that's very cool. Um, and so, you know, you've been working with orangutans for ever now. Do you have any favorite stories of, of individuals or, uh, groups that you have worked with or, or helped or, or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, you know, one of the wonderful things is being with an orangutan when they're born. Um, and so maybe five orangutans I've been at their birth and watched them come out of the mother. And the most wonderful thing, being so close, um, the mother always gets a little baby within um, 48 hours to hold my finger. She gets a little hand out and get the baby to hold my finger and, and you know, connect me with, with a young baby. So that, that's all, always beautiful. I mean, I looked after one of the oldest orangutans in the world, Maoist, um, who was so old at the time that she um, was bombed in World War II um, because wow. she was at the Sultan of Shores Palace as a pet when the Japanese invaded Singapore through the Johor Straits. And so when we had the, the fireworks on you know, celebration days, I would have to sit with her all night and karma, you know, to because she had basically PSDT, you know, she was thinking she was bombed again by the Japanese and, and, and you know, and, and help us through those those periods. Um, so it's, it's like with so many, um, you know, and of course, you know, being a young man, I used to have the, you know, the, the, you know, the young um, adolescent male orangutans, you know, and just wrestling them and just the joy of that physical, you know, <laughs> um, you know, wrestling and, you know, play, you know, like a father and a son, if that makes, you know, that kind of, that that, uh, that joy of, of, of connection and, of course, that, you know, that love and, and compassion and connection with the mothers and the babies, raising babies when they're, when they're sick. Sakara, I raised her, her mother for six weeks while her injured toe was being repaired and, you know, um, yeah, would um, look after her, um, nursing sick babies, you know, um, Yes, staying at night and, and sleeping with them. And, of course, the most wonderful thing is, is starting to take the um, some, some orangutans back to the wild, and, you know, from taking them from birth all the way to that journey to independence um, in, in the natural habitat. That's incredible. And how are you, you know, you'd mentioned release before, and I was curious about this. How are you um, doing that? Do, you know, I know that in general, um, it's very hard to release captive animals into the wild because they basically become somewhat domesticated. Um, so how, how, like, what is your process and are zoos involved or do y'all have your own facility or how does that work? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, orangutans is interesting because, um, it's, there's, um, there's two ways that animals can adapt to the environment. One is natural selection. So you have lots of babies, which are all genetically a little bit different. And nature selects which one of those babies is most adapted to the changing environment. And we've all been taught that in school. The other bit we don't get taught a lot about is adapting through culture. And so another group of animals said, actually, we're not going to uh, have lots of offspring, which we invest very little time, but pretty much all instinct and very little learning. We're going to invest in few offspring with huge brains, but are vacant brains and have long childhood periods which we program with culture. And that's going to allow them to adapt to the environment far more effectively than natural selection and genes alone. 
And so animals have done that, humans, orangutans, elephants, as, as certain examples. Long maternal periods adapt with vacant brains. And so um, when, when we're looking at um, orangutans going back to the wild, there is not a lot of instinct. It's like us. We have a bit of instinct, but it's mainly cultural adaptation. So it's about providing that cultural adaptation and learning on, on, a, on a process over years until the time they get back into the rainforest. They have regained at least enough of their culture to, to start surviving and, and, and thriving. It's never enough. One of the big things we lose when we lose a wild population is that culture, you know, just like um, um, when indigenous communities lose their native land, they, they lose their culture because they've, and become maladapted because that culture is, is adapted to an environment which no longer really exists. So the vast majority of work with orangutans is, uh, is a, a, about um, culture and development. We, we, we can get, they can get from other orangutans and us to a certain extent. But the other aspect which is extremely important with persons is mental health. So we cannot have social, good social skills. We cannot learn properly. Yeah? We can't have physical health unless we have mental health. This is the same with humans and it's the same with orangutans. And, and what the predominant thing that we did with these orangutans going back away is provide them with optimum mental health, which get, made them very robust and independent and very capable of learning and adapting to the environment. Now, what gives us great mental health? Love and security, a loving, caring environment and support through that. And it's the same as humans. Humans who have love, love and secured uh, upbringings become confident, independent adults and successful. Those who don't get that um, become maladjusted and unable to cope and learn the social yeah, and, um, and even technical skills to succeed. And so it's ultimately um, love is one of the important elements um, on that journey back. So in, in, in summary, there's, there's um, four building blocks, physical health, mental health, social health and skills, and then forest skills. And building those blocks up um, allows the orangutan to have the best chance of survival. That is such a different description of of what is necessary for reintroduction than you ever read in in any conservation books or anything like that. And I love it just so much. Um, that's, I mean, it's. It, it's a cheesy word, but like that's a really beautiful way to think about it. Um, and obviously, this works. This is something that that y'all have done successfully, right? Tell me about how how well it's gone. Yeah, a lot of people. I guess the main mistake is to think of orangutans as animals, right? So they're more like us than not. <laughs> so the persons. And so the same things we would say, how do we allow this child that we've got, we've got an orphan child, how do we bring it into being an accessible part of the community? It's the same journey. Now, that's very different if you're a conservationist and you want to reintroduce cats, for example. I mean, what, what, what rehabilitation do you need for a domestic cat in most environments? None. They'll just go feral. <laughs> They're born with a <laughs> huge amount of instincts, you know. <laughs> so you don't need 
you don't need in Australia or America a cat reintroduction program. They <laughs> pretty much know what to do. Now, there's a whole, obviously, a you know gradation of animals you know, where they need certain skills. And in some, you talk about imprinting, you know, some imprinting aspects. And But with orangutans, they don't imprint. <laughs> you know, we, we don't imprint you know, you know, into to that extent. So it's really about understanding the animal you're dealing with and tailoring it in, in to, to it. So it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's back to that thing is, you know, um, maybe a little knowledge is dangerous. <laughs> and, you know, and so um, maybe I'll put it this way, you know, experts always tend to project their expertise beyond their knowledge limit. That's just a natural arrogance of humans because in fact we're, ex- we're as humans we're not that bright you know the average really crappy usb contains more information than we contain because of most of the information we think we know we don't we think that we know the earth you know um, revolves around the sun we think we know how the the economy works we think we know how politics we know we don't but there's experts that do but not us, <laughs> you know. And as human beings, we're extremely successful at collectifying the information and making us own that tribal cultural information, although we as individuals do not hold that knowledge. Um, but we, we actually say our own. That's why I will say to, to achieve effective outcomes, we have to collectivise. And it's also when we're talking about intelligently applying knowledge the only way we can tell you apply knowledge is collectivized with individuals and experts who have different knowledge than yourself, you know, uh, and not assume, you know. So, you know, even in the field of, let's say, our, 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 you know, wildlife conservation, orangutan conservation, you know, all, there, there's a huge, no one person can know everything. But you can know everybody. <laughs> you can know all the people that can know pretty much everything. And if you work with them and you listen to them, you know, you go in with, you know, with an open mind, you will learn through all that collective understanding of science of how to do it. Um, but unfortunately, what happens is, you know, um, people take on the guise of expert. Um, and, of course, then you have to stop learning. Because you because you cannot admit others know more than yourself, and you cannot admit that you're wrong very hard, and that then leads to this this kind of downward spiral into less and less effectiveness. And so, you know, in in, in some ways, you know, you, you got to get to the point where you just see yourself as a cog in a wheel. You know, and, and you contain a bit of knowledge, but you have to collectivize in knowledge and ability. Um, in order you to put together these programs for real meaningful change. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I, 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 again, I just love this. I love your whole uh, philosophical outlook on, on all of the conservation stuff that we're talking about. Um, so I know that we need to move on from the orangutan project because we have another thing to discuss, but I have one more kind of dumb question for you uh, about it. Um, so I noticed that you say orangutan kind of with a g at the end of it and Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of debate like at least in the united states because a lot of people say that and i always correct them because there's no g at the end is it correct to say it either way can you can you as an expert on this subject is is orangutan and orangutan are they both acceptable what are your thoughts on this oh look i i i think so um i I, you know i don't (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, have really no strong opinion on, on, on that at all. Um, but interesting enough, you know, from a perspective, I mean, obviously, Orang in Indo-Malay means person, and Utan doesn't mean anything, but Hutan with a H means forest. Um, but it was never the name that Indigenous people called orangutans. It's actually the Dutch created that name. They called the name orangutan, and they just used the Indo-Malay words to create the word uh, orangutan um, because they thought it sounded native. Um, but they, they tend to call them um, um, names such as Maoists or Mayas um, in the Indigenous community to referring to the orangutans in, in the area. Okay, well, there it is. I will stop harassing people who say orangutan. Uh, <laughs> very good. And then, um, so you've recently, I think, started the uh, International Tiger Project, and and tell me about that. Well, as as we're discussing, um, the intention was always to, um, while saving the orangutan species, is that be an umbrella species for conservation? So we didn't have to start the Bornean lizard project or smart squirrel project. All these were coming under the same umbrella. But what we discovered that there were two species falling outside the umbrella, elephants with human-elephant conflict and fragmented populations, tigers with fragmented populations as well, but also criminal syndicates coming and poaching them for their parts for the Chinese medicine trade. So we started the International Elephant Project and the International Tiger Project to bring specific actions to bring those species under the umbrella of our conservation. And this year we also started Forest for People, which is a project which allows people to fund just the Indigenous community work to bring those communities and people under the umbrella of our conservation work. Oh, that's really cool. Um, why is it that those species fall outside of the umbrella? Mm -hmm. um, well, a couple of things is um, although we have the ability next 10 years to secure sustainable populations of orangutan, there is not now and will be an effort in our lifetime against sustainable populations of Sumatran elephants and Sumatran tigers. It's, they're too small and fragmented across. So we have to actively move animals between populations in order to allow them to survive. Um, and also there's very specific actions, like what would happen was um, um, Let's say elephants is an example. Um, elephants are trying to survive in the remaining rainforest with the indigenous communities trying to survive. And they're killing each other because of two persons fighting over the same resources. And they, were, they have a revenge attack both ways. Their elephants have a revenge attack. And it's like, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys, you know. <laughs> uh, and you have to bring in a third party to say, hey, come on, you know, you know how are we going to live together, you know, and, and stop that very specific human-elephant conflict. And then, of course, what happens, you have poachers coming in for the tusks for the bulls, and the bulls wanting to leave to find a new herd because, you know, they have to find it. They can't mate with their sisters and mothers and aunts. So, and then, of course, they used to find another herd. Now they can't. It's just a sea of um, palm oil and pulp paper, and they eventually just get killed um, on, on the way through. So we have to basically capture them when they try to leave the, the ecosystems that we're protecting. And I call it the cross between Tinder and Uber. You know, we, we throw them on the truck and we drive them to the next ecosystem and unload them and say, there's your females, you know. Um, and so th th that, that just can't be done under solely the umbrella of just protecting a wild population of orangutans as a particular example. 
and, and therefore the need to, to start a second project to one is to obviously draw income from asking people to support that. But secondly, having specific um, elephant experts and teams to deal with those particular skills and issues. That makes sense. And how hard is it to get um, like government permission to uh, to move all of these animals and, you know, within the populations and such? Mm-hmm. Um, look, dealing with any body of individual has its challenges and, and its politics. But essentially, everything needs to be done um, through and in partnership with the government. There's no outside of that. Um, CITES, one endangered species, are all owned by the, the, the range state, and they have the authority over it. So it needs to be in, certainly in, in um, cooperation with that uh, uh, at, at all times in order to affect meaningful change. Makes sense. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell me and my listeners about all of these cool projects that you have going on? Um, no, I, I, nothing in particular I can think of. It, just a summary is... Um, we're living in the most important decade of human history, which gives us, you know, the um, privilege and obligation to make the most meaningful change. And more importantly, we're a very, we're probably talking to a very small subset of human beings that have the ability to affect meaningful change. The vast majority of people on this planet are too poor or live in authoritarian regimes to have any impact on their environment and make meaningful change. And so we, we are live, we are a very privileged few. And, um, and you know, this is our opportunity um, to do so much good um, with so little. And saving the rainforest is one of the lowest hanging fruits, most cost-effective way of mitigating climate change and, and, and doing so much wonderful good. And lastly, to understand is this, what we're talking about is, you know, it, um, altruism or compassion for others and working for a bigger cause is not a path of sacrifice and suffering. It's a path of joy, love, and fulfillment. And so even us as individuals who develop that love and compassion within us and affect meaningful change in the world, we benefit from it too. So at all stages, joining um, uh, the, the mission to help save our planet and the beautiful species that share it is a win-win at every level that's that's beautiful um how can people support the various projects that you you've got going on here mm-hmm. um you can go to the orangutan project.org to support the orangutans um also the international tiger project.org and international elephant project.org and um yeah and support the project that you know that you best connect with but it's all integrated in a way that you know that it, it all works together on, on one coordination or you can go to my website leifcox.org and you can um, read the books buy the books and see the videos um yeah and and, and learn more about um, what we're doing and um and you know and how you may um, also um, benefit um from living a more compassionate um life it's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story. Um, 
My my only I, oh I have so many been a, a zookeeper for so long, um, but if if you my 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 word of advice to anybody who um, who wants to work with animals always avoid working with hippos. <laughs> I used to work with some hippos which were attached to the orangutans uh, uh, um, I looked after at a zoo in Sydney for some time. My God, they're horrible. <laughs> Beautiful animals, but they tend to defecate and they wag their tails and they defecate to splatter the feces as high and far as possible. <laughs> so so it, it's um, it's a fairly um, onerous um, scene that you um, get to every morning as a, as a zookeeper. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's been a privilege to, um, to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. You can go to leifcox.org uh, to check out really all of the work uh, that Leif does um, and links to all of the other projects. But also, if you hit up the show notes um, on the you know on your podcast app, you can go and see the things that I write. I'm going to have links to all of the various organizations and their social media pages and all that stuff. There is so much to check out. Uh, and I'm I'm so excited about uh, the books. I've already downloaded their the, one of the books is an audiobook, and I've downloaded it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into all of this just a little bit further. I hope you are as well. I hope this inspired you to get involved even more than you already are too. Uh, when when Leif talks about how we are some of the lucky few that can make a difference, that really hit home for me. I really dug that one. Uh, anyway, I want to say thank you to Larshank, my Red Panda level patron. And I'd also like to remind y'all that, uh, you know, it's a beautiful world and we can all go out and, and make a difference. I, I love being inspired and I hope this podcast serves that role for you. Remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.